Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Summary, we have got interesting news coming out about a new National Suicide Prevention Hotline 988 and some other summary news touching on Qatar, baby formula, and a lot more. Nick, how's it? It's going good, George. We had our first real summer weekend here in the city. It was 90 and sunny, so we're in a summer's almost here kind of mood. But Also coming this summer is a new hotline for folks experiencing uh, mental health emergencies. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is unveiling a new national emergency number for individuals experiencing a mental health crisis. The new number will be 988, and just like 911, it's just those three numbers. And that 988 number will redirect to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That lifeline is managed by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And the new number goes live on July 16th, 2022. So this is happening within the next two months. And the number is part of a broader strategy to address the crisis of suicide in the United States According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, suicide is the leading cause of death for Americans aged 10 through 34. We recommend that if you're a nonprofit that works in the mental health space or offers beneficiaries any kind of mental health support or even has documentation about what number to call, it's important to note that the original National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number will still work. But you may also want to take into account the new number that's being rolled out for organizations that might have it listed on their website. And within the newsletter, we've linked to the FAQ page that has some of the technical requirements, some of the branding requirements for this new rollout. But George, I think this is a really exciting move. It's a prioritization by our government and its partners to protect mental health in the United States and what's been an extremely trying couple of years. This is a cool, innovative approach, and I'm here for it. It's so interesting because technically the line already existed, but I can't tell you it off the top of my head. And actually, in full disclosure, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the network was a former whole whale client. And with 988, we're talking about a larger conceptual branding, 988. Everyone understands calling 911 and what that entails. There's an emergency called 911. The truth is the health outcomes for those suffering from mental illness when the police are called without the proper training in hot moments do not end well for outcomes, especially in low-income communities and certainly with people of color. And this has been documented, unfortunately, over a number of years. And some of that information is also kind of in the the background uh, on this. And so I think a a nationwide branding around 988 when it matters for mental health related crisis is, will literally save lives. And it's interesting. You're like, it already existed, but getting that out there as wide are as possible, nonprofits are going to play a huge role, a huge role in making sure that all communities know what to call and why. 
and that will ensure that people with the proper training are deployed in those moments of crisis, as opposed to showing up, you know, with a, I would say, to be fair to the police that do serve and protect our nation and do an amazing job, they can't be expected to serve in every single potential scenario uh, to perfection. So I think this is just a really great step toward how, how mental health in crisis can be, can be handled in the country. There's a lot of work to do. And that's going live July 16th, 2022. Yeah, George, that's right. There is a lot of work to do. And one of the concerns is that the number actually might be overwhelmed on, on its rollout. So different states are working to address this by increasing resources and leveling up those networks because the folks who respond to those calls, it's a vast and kind of complicated network of, of people. So they're also in the article, it talks about how individual states are vamping up resources to be able um, to handle the new switch. But I absolutely agree with you. Having this as a nine, a non- 911 outlet will be extremely important. All right, I can take us into the summary. Our first story here is a press release from Amnesty International, which has signed a joint letter along with other prominent human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch, the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, among others, which is calling on the FIFA president Mr. Gianni Infantino to work with the Qatar government, trade unions, the International Labor Organization, the ILO, and other intergovernmental actors to protect workers leading up to the Qatar FIFA World Cup. This World Cup has been shroud of controversy and accusations of human rights abuses since it was first announced under, quite frankly, a cloud of suspect of a lot of corruption nearly 10 years ago, that this would be the venue for the 2022 World Cup. But this letter signed by Amnesty and other NGOs is calling on FIFA to set aside nearly half a billion dollars in money to go to workers who have been exploited. And you read down the list of, of ways that these workers are exploited. They're often kind of lured from developing countries, particularly in South and Southeast Asia. Their workers are, they're held in the country without the ability to travel home. Their visas are taken from them by their employers. It's, it's practically indentured, indentured labor at a certain point. So really, really serious um, human rights concerns, not to mention the temperature in Qatar is astronomical during the summer. So one of the reasons I wanted to highlight this is because I think that the international human rights community does a really good job of partnering to amplify their message. And when I heard about this, I actually heard about it on all different channels. They all seem to actually post this on LinkedIn at the same time. And I saw it all at the same time. And I think it's just a cool way to leveraging partnership partnerships for strategic value here. And whether FIFA will do this, who knows? Probably not. FIFA is notoriously one of the most corrupt international organizations that exists. But nonetheless, still, I think it's important to try. And this is a cool, cool approach here. As you mentioned before, 
choosing Qatar, a place where it regularly hits over 120 Fahrenheit during the summer, is not a logical place for a massive World Cup installation and athletes to be playing. So clearly, I think there's a true cost, a true cost associated with making these types of decisions that it's great to see these nonprofits calling out and saying, when you do these things, there uh, have to be just fairness and consequences in the same balance here. And 440 million, you know, that's a, that's a lot to, to cover, but certainly to the scale, I'm sure that they have looked at that you know, this second order effect of saying, sure, Qatar, a place that shouldn't be hosting, doesn't have the infrastructure whatsoever. Yeah, let's, let's host there because, you know, that, that makes sense for, for soccer, um, should really receive this and a lot more scrutiny on it, uh, especially if you're, you're talking about these types and scales of labor abuses. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, We really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Absolutely. And I'll say that this community has been focusing on this issue for a long time and so much so that I wrote a capstone thesis on this very issue in college, (laughs) which is quite a few years ago now. So it's horrible. You have recruiters going into small villages in Nepal, in Indonesia and other countries and offering salaries that never come to them. They get stranded in Qatar. The idea is these workers will travel abroad. They can send remittances back home. It's almost never what they're promised. Their visas are held from them. They're held there. It's it's a disaster. And the Qatari government's done a little bit to address it, but it, the whole thing is is a disaster. And it'll be interesting to see how these narratives play out when everyone in the world watches the FIFA World Cup. And we saw a similar kind of tension about human rights abuses in China with the Olympic Games that were hosted this year. But we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, the narrative of you're responsible for the second and third order effects. I think that touches on also not just social justice, but environmental as well, where you have companies that have long profited off of the ability to dump excess carbon into into the ecosystem. There are more and more nonprofits and organizations paying attention to this. And I think the true cost organizing and throwing an event like this on the global stage should come with the ticket and understanding that you're responsible not for just the creation, but the second order impact of what you are are running. But like you said, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how FIFA will, will respond to that. No, that's true. Did you know that New Jersey and New York will be hosting the World Cup in 2026? The next one? I'm not even kidding. In 2026? That's like around the corner. That's in, yeah, four years. Can you imagine New Jersey Transit attempting to handle the World Cup? I mean, I can't imagine Qatar trying to handle the World Cup. and They have no infrastructure whatsoever, but I've been on Jersey Transit. And I love the path train as much as the next human, but I think it is it is like one extra passenger away from breaking. So... Not see. I don't think anyone in the tri-state area actually realizes this is happening, but 
that's an aside. Anyway, our next story is also a little bit of a downer. This is about the shortage of baby formula. And this comes from KOIN, CBS 6 local affiliate out of Oregon. And it talks about how nonprofits that have worked to distribute baby formula, in which we're in the midst of a massive shortage now, are kind of stepping in to fill the gap. And it talks about some rules that have been changed that allow folks, low-income folks, who are able to receive formula now The type of formula they can receive has been broadened. And throughout this whole crisis, it turns out there's only like four or five companies that produce the overwhelming majority of baby formula in the country and seems to just be this kind of collection of mismanagement and misregulation that's made uh, the industry so vulnerable to now a shortage of supply. But this is kind of crazy that there is a shortage of baby formula. And even throughout the pandemic, we've had, you know, people bought everything from grocery stores and toilet paper, but that wasn't really like how serious a problem was that really? This is a real problem and it disproportionately affects lower income folks. Yeah, and the article goes on to say, you're trying to do your best. This is a quote, trying to do your best. And gas is also $5 a gallon. You have to drive to six stores to get formula and it is so hard. This is the executive director. Mara White of Mother and Child. If you're middle-class American, you can find formula. But when you are low-income, you have significant barriers to get formula, and it's absolutely trying. And, you know, speaking as a parent, you know, when you're dealing with an infant, you like there's and there's one thing that they can consume is calories. Like, that is your entire life's mission, to, to feed that child. So it is unbelievable that a country with our resources has allowed it to get to this level of desperation. I know we are always fighting on many fronts, but feeding infants in the most prosperous country in the world should not be something that is headlined and led by nonprofits to say, hey, this is a major problem. I absolutely agree. All right. Our next story goes a little bit in a different turn. And this comes from nonprofitpro.com. And it releases the results of a Vanguard charitable survey, which says that more than one in three donors contributed to disaster relief efforts. So the data here shows that one in three, approximately 37% of Americans who are donors who donated money to a charitable organization did so to an organization that worked in disaster relief, whether that was an org helping out in Ukraine with the humanitarian crisis there, COVID-19 relief, Um, or relief in the wake of other natural disasters like wildfires and other crises. This is interesting and something we like to keep an eye on trends and giving. And something we talk about a lot on this podcast is surges of giving and attention around tentpole moments like Afghanistan, like Ukraine. But I think it shows here that those moments, even if they are brief, even if the attention runs out, can still make up a very large percentage of giving. Yeah, I am. I'm always trying to look at this. We make this point every time. Compassion is an unstable emotion that is able to be capitalized. That is a quote from Susan Sontag. And so those peaks happen incredibly quickly, usually around the order of about three weeks from, you know, trough to trough, call it trough, peak, trough. Interestingly, in this report, though, one of my thoughts is like, oh, is this disaster style of giving actually reduced? 
reducing overall giving or creating this sort of power law dynamic to an extreme where a handful of charities that happen to be in the line of a disaster get the funding and the rest sort of get very little. The quote here is, donors who gave to disaster relief and other charities donated 48% more in the 12 trailing months than those donors who did not give to a disaster relief effort, 1,800 on average versus 1,200 on average. So it's interesting that it seems to be when people are giving to disasters, it's in addition to a normal giving pattern instead instead of. Yeah, I agree. And I guess that's that's a good thing. But yeah, we have this article linked from our newsletter, which you can also find in the show notes of this podcast. And there's lots of interesting stats in here. So we recommend that you check it out. All right, George, how about a feel-good story? All right, what do you have for us? This comes from Fox5Vegas. Dot com, And it is about a nonprofit that's opened a cat cafe to highlight adoptable felines in Las Vegas. So patrons can pay an entry donation of $15, which gives them the chance to enjoy snacks, a beverage, and a cafe full of kittens for approximately an hour. And the nonprofit Hearts Alive Village um, says that the entry fee helps cover costs for a cat or kitten to receive a full set of vaccines and a microchip. And at the end of your experience, if you want to donate a kitten, you have that opportunity. Donate a kitten or donate to support a kitten? You can, the donation goes to support a kitten. You can adopt the kitten. I feel like you want to take creating a bigger problem if it's like we're accepting kitten donations. That's that's a that's a different kind of uh, a different kind of program. You caught me there, but this is cool. Have you ever been to a cat cafe? I have walked by a cat cafe, and I have seen them. I know they like launched as something curious. You know, I think over a decade ago at this point. I like this because it is clearly an organization that had a particular you know problem, social issue of trying to get more cats adopted and sort of the the way they're going about it could be in a for-profit manner, as in they have a revenue generating, hypothetically, you know, opportunity to sell coffee and bring people in. And I, I think this type of solution makes me happy whenever I see it, even if it doesn't succeed, that it's being tried. It is very clever and can lead to a lot of other, you know, potentially good ideas for other local shelters that say, all right, we have, you know, these assets. And then is there something adjacent to what we do that could bring in foot traffic, bring in revenue and, and serve our social impact bottom line as well? Absolutely. Sounds all sorts of sustainable to me. All right, Nick. Thanks for that. And see you next week. See you next week. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 